You turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 15, question and answer 37. What dost thou understand by the words he suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind, that so by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Beloved, last time we noticed that in section 14 through 16, Lord's Days 14 through 16 of the Catechism, we are studying the states of the mediator. There are two states, two legal positions in which the mediator stands before God. There's the state of humiliation, in which the mediator stands before God as guilty, and there's the state of exaltation, in which the mediator stands before God as vindicated, and therefore enters into his glory. For a time, the mediator stands before God as guilty in that legal state or that legal status because for a time our sins are imputed to him and he is viewed therefore by God as guilty of those sins. And then when he suffers, dies, is buried, he has cleared himself of that guilt. He has removed that guilt from himself and from us, and then he enters into his glory, into the state of exaltation. And in that state of humiliation, beloved, Jesus Christ, the mediator, suffers misery because guilt is inevitably followed by misery. And that misery into which Jesus is plunged in the state of humiliation, that misery or that humiliation has distinct steps. They are downward steps. His lowly birth, we noticed last time in Lord's Day 14, his lifelong sufferings, we notice this week in Lord's Day 15, his death, which is Lord's Day 16, and also his descent into hell, his burial, and his descent into hell, which is also Lord's Day 16. In this sermon, based on Lord's Day 15 then, we remember the great truth, he suffered. He suffered. Notice then, confessing Christ's sufferings. Confessing Christ's sufferings. Notice first the fact, then the necessity, and third, the benefit. 
I begin with a definition. Suffering is the experience of misery. Suffering is the experience of misery. It's an experience, and then it's an experience of misery. Therefore, suffering pertains to a person. A person who has consciousness is able to suffer. A rock cannot suffer. It lacks consciousness. A tree, also lacking consciousness, cannot suffer. Some animals can suffer because they have a nervous system and can feel pain, but leaving aside the subject of animals for a moment, we can say that suffering is something that personal beings can do. Angels can suffer. Human beings also have the capacity to suffer. We know that angels can suffer because we know that the devil who was an angel is a fallen angel and his fellow demons will be tormented in the flames of hell forever. Therefore, it's possible for the devil and his angels to suffer. And we know too that humans have the capacity to suffer. We know that from personal experience as well as from God's word. We know what suffering is. In this life, we suffer misery, we suffer pain, we suffer affliction, sadness, disappointment, and many, many other things. In fact, you could say that this life consists in suffering. Here's Peter in 1 Peter 5 verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath, called you, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, that's really his summary of, of the Christian life, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So suffering is an experience, experienced by persons, and second, suffering is the experience of misery. There are, as we know from our own experience, there are pleasant experiences and there are unpleasant experiences. There is pleasure and there is pain. And suffering, or a miserable experience, is experienced in the body and in the soul. Think of bodily suffering. A whole range of painful experiences in the body. Medical experts speak of this. They talk about discomfort on the one hand, which is minor pain. And then there are different levels of pain. And then there's agony. And then there are all kinds of things that go wrong with our body that make us feel miserable. There's disease. There's hunger. Thirst fatigue or exhaustion. And then there's psychological suffering, which is the suffering of the soul, sadness, anguish, loneliness, disappointment, fear. These are all examples of suffering. And we experience these, we suffer these to one degree or another. 
Job confesses, and he suffered a lot as we know. Job confesses in Job 5, verses 6 and 7, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And this life, says the Catechism in answer 26, connection with providence, this life is a valley of tears. And the form for baptism calls this life a continual death. So suffering is the experience of misery. And that seems somewhat academic, of course, but it's not academic, beloved, because the suffering in view in Lord's Day 15 is not our suffering. It's Christ's suffering. Question 37. What dost thou understand by the words, He suffered? He suffered. He, in the context, is the Son of God. The issue here is the suffering of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And that subject is worthy of the most solemn and holy contemplation. And yet, of course, there are some issues here which we have to understand. First of all, the Son of God cannot suffer, and he ought not to suffer. And from a certain point of view, it is unthinkable that the Son of God should suffer. We might decry the suffering of innocent human beings. When a child suffers, for example, we might think that's a terrible thing, and it is in many ways. But the worst suffering is the suffering of the Son of God. What an awful thing it is, beloved, that the Son of God suffered and that he had to suffer because the gospel requires that the Son of God suffer. If Jesus is not the Son of God, and if he did not suffer, there is no gospel. There is no good news. But Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus did suffer for us, and that is the good news. That is the heart of of the gospel of our salvation. But let's look again for a moment at this idea of the impossibility of the sufferings of the Son of God. The Son of God cannot suffer because he is God. His identity, in question 37, he suffered you need to go back in the Catechism to question 35, which identifies who this He is, God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God. He, says the Catechism, following the Apostles' Creed, He suffered. And yet we say He cannot suffer, because God cannot 
suffer. And the doctrine according to which God cannot suffer is the impassibility of God. Do not confuse that with the impossibility. It's not the impossibility, it's the impassibility. There's an A in the middle of that word. Impassible. God is impassable. The impassibility of God. God cannot suffer. God cannot suffer because of who he is. Because of his attributes, God cannot suffer. The almighty, infinite, perfectly blessed, glorious, unchangeable being, who is God, cannot suffer. The Father and the Holy Spirit cannot suffer, and nor can the Son of himself suffer. He cannot, God cannot feel physical pain. God cannot feel psychological anguish. He is the blessed God, full of life, full of vitality, full of ceaseless joy, delighting in himself as the pinnacle of perfection. He cannot suffer. And no creature can inflict misery on him either. We suffer because other creatures inflict misery upon us, whether it be a tiny microscopic creature making us sick, or someone physically beating us, or some other creature making us miserable. No creature can make God miserable to make him suffer. And yet there's a mystery in the scriptures because God so identifies with his people, he so loves and cherishes his people that he is moved when they suffer. Isaiah 69 or 63 verse 9 says, In all their affliction he, and the he there is Jehovah God, in all their affliction he was afflicted. Isaiah 63 verse 9. Judges 10 verse 16 says, His, again Jehovah God, God's soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. And so God so identifies with his people that when they suffer, he feels something. And yet, God, strictly speaking, cannot suffer. Even when he feels sympathy or compassion for us, he's not miserable. He does not feel anguish or pain because he's God. He is impassable. He cannot suffer. And therefore, the Son of God did something in order to become able to suffer. In order to become capable of suffering. And we know what that was from last time, Lord's Day 14. He assumed, he took to himself a nature in which he could suffer. A nature that he did not have before. A human nature of body and soul. The divine nature cannot suffer. The divine nature of Christ cannot suffer. The Father and the Spirit cannot suffer. But he can suffer, the Son of God can suffer and did suffer in the human nature. And so the Catechism speaks of 
suffering in body and soul. And body and soul is a reference to the human nature that Jesus took. And we know that Jesus suffered on earth in his body and soul. We know he felt the pain in his body. He felt physical pain. He felt the pain of hunger pangs. He felt the pain of raging thirst. He felt the pain of being completely exhausted. He felt the pain of being beaten and smitten and whipped and crucified. He, as Isaiah puts it, was wounded, bruised, oppressed, and afflicted in his body. He felt all that in his body. He also knew intense psychological trauma. He was mocked, falsely accused, rejected, and that hurt him. That hurt him deeply in his soul. He was betrayed, he was denied, he was abandoned, and that made him miserable. In Matthew 26, 38, he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, we read, In the days of his flesh he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. And that suffering, beloved, was lifelong. We have that in the Catechism, that all the time that he lived on earth, he suffered. That does not mean, though, that Jesus' life on earth was unmitigated misery from the very beginning of his life to the end of his life, as if he never experienced even one single second of pleasure, but the general character of his life was a life of suffering. You could summarize his life this way, and that's really how the, how the Apostles' Creed summarizes his life. He was born, he suffered, he died. That's his life, you might say, in three chapters. He was born, he suffered, he died. Did not come for a pleasurable life he came to suffer because that's what we needed. And that suffering of Jesus, beloved, is a major theme of the preaching of the apostles. For example, Acts 3.18, Peter preaching, says this, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer he hath so fulfilled. Again, Paul preaching in Acts 26, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And that brings us then, beloved, to Acts 17. We read Acts 17. We read about Paul's labors on his second missionary journey 
in Thessalonica, and then in Berea, and then in Athens. But look at his missionary labors in Thessalonica. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, the Jews, and three Sabbath days he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging, opening and alleging what? That Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. There's the message that Paul brought to Thessalonica. He spent three Sabbath days explaining that message in Thessalonica. You might say three points. Christ must suffer, Christ must rise again from the dead, and then as his conclusion, Jesus is Christ. And that message was offensive especially to the Jews. It was a stumbling block to the Jews, says Paul elsewhere, and it was foolishness to the Gentiles. And yet Paul, knowing that that would be the reaction, he boldly preached that message in Thessalonica, and most of the people reacted against that message, rejected it, and even were violently opposed to it. Notice Paul's method, though. Paul preached the Scriptures to them. He preached the Bible. In the context of Acts 17, he preached the Old Testament. And he did three things with the Bible. First of all, he reasoned out of the Scriptures. Second, he opened the Scriptures. And third, he alleged from the Scriptures. And that shows us that Paul was not satisfied merely with quoting a few passages. But he engaged in interpretation, exposition, exegesis, and application. He reasoned, we're told, in verse 2. And the idea of reasoning is to draw arguments out of the Bible to prove his point. He opened verse 3. And the idea of that is he drew the meaning from the Bible to make it plain to his audience. And verse 3 again, he alleged. And to allege is to set something before another person. That's the idea of allege. He set before the people the unmistakable proof of God's word concerning Jesus of Nazareth. So his source, the source of his teaching was Scripture. His method was to explain and to exposit the Scriptures, and his central thesis, which he demonstrated from the Scripture, was that Christ must suffer. Not merely that Christ did suffer, but Christ had to suffer. The suffering of Christ, said Paul, was necessary. And connected to that was the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul's thesis then from Scripture was this, the absolute necessity of the sufferings, death, and then resurrection of Christ. And to prove that, Paul quoted 
explained, exposited, and applied many Old Testament passages, seeking in that way, by God's grace, to convince the people to believe in Christ. But Christ, said Paul, is not some figure in the Bible, promised in the Bible, we're waiting for him to come, but the third point that Paul made was this, and here's the unmistakable conclusion, says the apostle, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Not just anyone is the Christ, not some guy coming in the future is the Christ, but Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. If Christ must suffer, and if Christ must rise again from the dead, well, only one person has done that. There are not a number of options you can choose from to decide who the Messiah is, who the Christ is. Only one person has done that. Only Jesus of Nazareth has suffered, died, and risen again. Many others suffered. Many others were crucified even. Many others have died. But only one, Jesus of Nazareth, suffered, died, and rose again. And therefore the call that Paul makes to these Jews is this. Turn from your sins and believe in this Jesus Christ. And that message, beloved, was offensive to the Jews because they did not believe in a suffering Christ. And that's why Paul concentrates his efforts on proving the necessity of Christ's sufferings to the Jews. Why did the Jews not believe in a suffering Christ? Why was that message especially offensive to them? Well, first, the Jews rejected a suffering Christ because they expected a conquering king. They were partly right. The Old Testament promises a conquering king. Read through the Old Testament. There are all kinds of promises about a conquering king, a Messiah who shall have everlasting dominion of great power and glory. The Old Testament promises that this Messiah shall come and shall destroy the enemies of God and deliver God's people. And that part was true. And the Jews had understood that part. But the Jews had misunderstood the idea here and had even twisted the promises of God because God did not promise an earthly kingdom of prosperity, peace, and earthly dominion over the Gentiles. That was the error that the Jews had committed in their thinking. And so the suffering of the Messiah was completely foreign to them and didn't fit. How in the world can you have an earthly kingdom of prosperity, peace, and earthly dominion over the Gentiles, a conquering king with great dominion and power, if he has to suffer? Didn't work for them. Made no sense to them. In fact, it made no sense to the disciples either. They had problems with it too. Jesus meets his disciples, two of them, on the road to Emmaus. And he says to them in Luke 24, 
This is after his resurrection. O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? These disciples, although they were very sincere in believing in Jesus, they had believed only some of the things that the prophets had spoken. And they had ignored, as had most of the Jews also ignored, they had ignored the parts of the Old Testament about the sufferings of the Messiah. And Jesus had to explain to them, and Paul had to explain to these Jews in Thessalonica, that the Messiah enters his glory, of course, but he enters his glory only after he has suffered. And there are many passages in the Old Testament that speak about the Messiah's sufferings. But the Jews ignored them, explained them away, or rejected them. And second, the Jews rejected a suffering Christ because they saw suffering as an indication of divine displeasure. And this was at the heart of the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ. The common view among the Jews was that Jesus of Nazareth was a false prophet and a blasphemer. And they argued along these lines. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. If Jesus were the Messiah, God would not have allowed him to suffer in that way. God would have delivered him from such a miserable death. God would have vindicated him. God would have saved him from the Romans. That's why they were saying to him, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so Jesus' suffering and death proved, said the Jews, that God himself had rejected him. And is God going to reject his own Messiah? And worse than that, God's curse, they said, was upon him. Because they knew, as good Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures, they knew that to be crucified was to die under God's curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. And so they reasoned, how can a man who is obviously rejected and cursed by God, how can a man who is clearly the object of divine displeasure and wrath, how can he be the Messiah? And that argument seemed to be insurmountable. And so Paul comes to these Jews who have this prejudice against Christ already, against Jesus of Nazareth being the Christ already. And he says to these Jews, first, Christ must suffer. You have to get that straight in your mind, first of all. Second, Christ must rise again from the dead. And those two things together, suffering and resurrection, those two things point to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was rejected, the man who was crucified, and the man who was resurrected, he is the Christ promised in the Scriptures. Now the key to understanding Paul's answer, which is God's answer, is to see why Jesus Christ had to suffer. If Jesus 
had suffered as a guilty offender of God's law, then the Jews would be right. A sinner, a blasphemer, a wicked, ungodly man, well, he cannot be the Messiah. That's clear. We all should understand that. And if Jesus suffered for his own sins, he cannot be the Messiah either. If Jesus were the object of divine displeasure because of his own sins, he's not the Messiah. That ought to be clear. If Jesus was crucified and cursed because of his own sins, he is not the Messiah. And there's where the Jews had gone wrong, of course, because the Jews believed that Jesus deserved to die, deserved to suffer, deserved to be cursed, because they said he was a false prophet and a blasphemer. But of course they were wrong. The opposite is true. Jesus Christ is the perfect, holy, righteous Son of God. There is no sin in him. There is no guile in his mouth. He never transgressed any of God's commandments. In fact, he cannot sin and about Jesus, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the triune God who sent Jesus into the world delights with infinite delight in his son. And therefore, it is impossible that God could be displeased with Jesus for his own sake. It's impossible that God should be angry with Jesus for his own sake. It's impossible that God should curse Jesus for his own sake. Yes, God was angry. Yes, God poured out his wrath. Yes, he cursed Jesus. But not for Jesus' own sake. There's another reason. And the Catechism gives that other reason. He sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. He sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against other people's sins. Not his own. He has none of his own, but other people's sins. And this then describes the nature of Christ's sufferings as well as their cause. Christ's suffering is the bearing of God's wrath, his whole life in body and soul against sin. Jesus did not suffer because he sinned. Jesus suffered because other people sinned. Jesus suffered because we sinned. And make that, beloved, very concrete and specific. Jesus suffered because we are guilty in Adam. Jesus suffered because we have a sinful flesh from which sin always flows as from a woeful fountain. Belgic Confession, Article 15. Jesus suffered because we have broken all of God's commandments and have kept none of them. 
Jesus suffered because we have not worshipped the true God rightly, and we have had other gods before him. He suffered because we have dishonored God's holy name, because we have not kept the Sabbath day holy as we ought, because we have hated God, and because we still are prone by nature to hate him. Jesus suffered because we have dishonored our parents and other authority figures. Jesus suffered because we have dishonored and hated and wounded and killed our neighbors. Jesus suffered because we have committed adultery in very deed or in thoughts, gestures, words, and desires. Jesus suffered because we have stolen or by wicked tricks and devices have sought to appropriate the goods that belong to our neighbors. Jesus suffered because we have lied and slandered and backbitten and borne false witness against our neighbor or falsified our neighbor's words or judged him rashly and unheard. Jesus suffered because we have coveted our neighbor's possessions and been dissatisfied with our own possessions. Ten Commandments. We have not kept them. Jesus suffered because of our sins. And if you understand that, beloved, you will hate your sins. You'll be deeply humbled because of your sins. Before God, you will repent of your sins and you will be sorry for your sins. And you will say, I, because of my sins, am the reason for the suffering of the Son of God. I am. And he loved me so much that he was willing to suffer for me, to deliver me from those sins. That's the gospel of my salvation. And that leads to another question. How could Jesus suffer for the sins of others? How is God just in inflicting suffering on Jesus for the sins of others? That seems unfair that Jesus, being innocent, should be punished for my sins, for our sins. Well, first, as the head of the covenant, Jesus represents his people before the face of God. And we call that federal headship, federal headship, or representative headship. And part of that representation is his undertaking of his people's obligations. He fulfills the obligations that we could not and did not fulfill. And those obligations are, as you know, we owe to God perfect obedience to his commandments, and we owe to God the penalty for having not kept his commandments. We are, we were, obligated to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We have not done that. Jesus did that for us and in our place, as our head, as our federal 
representative head. We were also obligated to suffer sufficient punishment to satisfy God's justice. Again, we could not do that. And so Jesus did that for us and in our place. And so the first reason is federal headship. And the second is God imputed to Jesus our sins. So that Jesus became legally guilty for our sins. Not personally guilty, but legally guilty for our sins. And so when God punished Jesus, he had a just reason for doing so. Did not punish him because of his own sins, for he hasn't got any sins of his own, but punished him and made him suffer for our sins. Our sins imputed to his account. The punishment falls upon him. The penalty is paid by him. And then God imputes Christ's righteousness, all of those good works of obedience that he performed all his life long, he reckons them to our account as if we had performed them. And thus we are justified. He's condemned in our place and we are justified. And now you see, beloved, why Christ's sufferings were not only possible because of the incarnation, but also necessary. Jesus had to suffer. If he did not suffer, we could never be saved. Jesus had to suffer because God had imputed our sins to him. He had to clear himself of that guilt. He had to make satisfaction to God for those sins of which he had become legally guilty. And therefore, the Jews were partly right. Mostly wrong, but partly right. The suffering of Jesus indicated God's displeasure, God's anger, God's curse. But the Jews, the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica and elsewhere, they failed to see the gospel. Jesus suffered as the object of God's anger, displeasure, and curse because of our sins. And elsewhere, the apostles explain this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 2, 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. And 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And that means that Christ's sufferings are beneficial to us. They're beneficial to us because of what they are and because of what they accomplish. The Catechism describes Christ's sufferings in these words, in answer 37, his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice. The word passion is another word for suffering. The word propitiatory comes from the word propitiate or propitiation. If I propitiate someone, I give that person a gift to appease that person's anger. 
If I propitiate someone, I placate him so that he is no longer angry with me. That's what propitiation means in common everyday life. Propitiation in theological terms is a sacrifice by which God is propitiated, placated, or appeased. And specifically then, Christ's propitiation, the Catechism calls it the only propitiatory sacrifice, Christ's propitiation is his sacrifice which he offers by which God's wrath is appeased. Christ then by his sufferings or by his passion turns away God's wrath from us. God is angry with the wicked every day. God's fury burns against the sins of sinners. God is determined to punish sin and sinners. God is, as the Catechism puts it in answer 10 in Lord's Day 4, is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins. But if God is propitiated, he no longer will punish us because he has punished someone else. He has punished his son, Jesus Christ. And that punishment of his son, Jesus Christ, is enough to turn God's wrath away from us so that the result is, answer 37, he redeems our body and soul from everlasting damnation. We deserve everlasting damnation. The miseries of hell forever. Jesus suffered in our place, and therefore there is no punishment for us. And all the miseries of this life and all the sufferings we experience in this life must not be viewed as propitiation. God does not exact punishment from us, even if he makes us go through miserable sufferings in this life. When we become sick, we must not say, God is exacting punishment from me. God is exacting something by which he is going to be satisfied for my sins. You mustn't say that because Christ has done that already. God has exacted punishment from Jesus and therefore we are free from all punishment that would otherwise come upon us. And that gives the lie to much of Roman Catholic theology because Roman Catholicism, you suffer for your own sins. We don't suffer for our own sins. Christ suffered for us. And that's the negative. Christ delivers us from something. But then there's the positive. Christ obtains something for us. That he might, says the Catechism, obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. By his suffering, Christ obtains for us the favor of God. That does not mean, though, that God was not favorable to us before, as if Christ had to die on the cross to convince God to be gracious to us. In fact, God's grace is the source 
of his gift of Christ to us. But rather the idea is this, Christ obtained for us the favor or grace of God in this sense, he obtained for us the application of the benefits of salvation, the experience of God's favor, and the consciousness of God's grace. Christ obtained for us the Father's gracious countenance to shine upon us. And Christ obtained for us the grace necessary for us to live and die happily as Christians. And all the blessings of salvation, beloved, come to us not because we have earned them or done anything to get them from God, but because Christ has obtained them for us by his sufferings. And second, by his sufferings, he obtains for us righteousness, which concerns our justification before God. And third, by his sufferings, he obtains for us eternal life. Life with God, which consists in knowing and tasting that God is good, a place in the Father's house, heaven. Christ has obtained all of those blessings for us. And therefore, beloved, we obtain those blessings in no other way. We receive those blessings from no other source. The favor or grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life do not come from us. We do not earn them or merit them or work for them or do anything to obtain them. Those things were obtained for us. Jesus obtained them for us. And Jesus gives them to us through the instrument of faith, which he also works in us by his Holy Spirit. And therefore, beloved, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And it was necessary for him to rise again from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is the Christ. He is our suffering Savior. Amen.